On May 4, 1970, Ohio National Guardsmen fired 67 shots in 13 seconds during a Vietnam War protest on the Kent State University campus, leaving four students dead and nine injured. This tragedy had a profound impact on our university, the nation, and the world, and became a catalyst in changing Americans' views toward the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. That's the voice of playwright and poet David Hassler introducing the film of his play, May 4th Voices, Kent State, 1970. You're listening to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast of Ohio Humanities. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and today I'm at Kent State University with David Hassler to learn more about his play, which is based upon the contents of the Kent State Shootings Oral History Archive at the university. And I'm also here to find out about other ways in which the events that took place 50 years ago this year are being remembered today. I began by asking David, who's the director of the Kent State Wick Poetry Center, how he first learned about the shootings. My personal story is a little interesting in that I grew up in Kent, Ohio as a faculty brat. Uh, my father taught in English here for 48 years. So I grew up in Kent, Ohio, and in fact, on May 4th, 1970, I was six, and I remember as a child watching armored vehicles that I thought were tanks moving through our town. And I remember a major helicopter, army helicopter, landing where we played kickball in a field just down the road from our house. My memories of May 4th, 1970 are from that perspective of a much loved and sheltered child who didn't experience the trauma per se. And yet as a child, without having the language or reasoning skills to understand what was going on, I picked up on the anxiety of the adults around me and the fear and the confusion and remained receptive to that for years, growing up in this town, surrounded by the silencing of this traumatic event, and felt the taboo and the difficulty of, of people even talking about May 4th, 1970. And so when the associate provost at the time, Laura Davis, told me about the oral history archives and said they had just been digitized and were now available online, and could I do something with them? Because she knew that I had written two books previously based on oral histories. When I discovered the trove of voices in these Kent State shootings oral history archives, over 130 of them, I felt the top of my head come off, as Emily Dickinson says, one feels in the presence of poetry. And in part, I was finally hearing voices that were making meaning and sense of what my inchoate and unarticulated memories of May 4th were as a child. I felt that they were literally speaking for me in ways that I could not have spoken then. Initial commemorations of what happened in May 1970 were student-led. However, the Oral History Archive, which is now part of the university's special collections, is one of a number of ways in which the institution has, in more recent years, taken steps to acknowledge its own history and gather and disseminate information about what happened here. For example, in 2010, which was the 40th anniversary, a guided walking tour was established. The tour takes you past the official memorial, the markers of the four locations on which the students fell, and other significant sites. There's also the Three Gallery Visitors Centre, which opened in 2012. The Visitors Centre is located in Taylor Hall, the building adjacent to where the shootings took place. Its aim is to give as much context as possible regarding the events of May 4th, 1970. Mindy Farmer is director of the Visitors Centre, and she explained to me some of what led up to the shootings. So important to the context of the May 4th shootings here is to understand that the launching point is President Nixon's announcement on Thursday 
April 30th, that he intends to target areas of Cambodia. He tries to frame it as the Cambodian incursion. Lots of people still call it the Cambodian invasion. And his argument that he tries to make on national TV, at the time there are only four channels and most people tuned and saw the same things. So most people were watching President Nixon when he made this announcement. He was trying to make the argument that by targeting these supply areas in neutral Cambodia, it would be able to bring about a faster end of the war. But for students, especially in young people, those people who are being drafted, this was seen as an unjust expansion of a war that was already unpopular. So here we have a map of the 132 other universities that had protests directly related to Nixon's Cambodia announcement. Now that's important context because many of them are bigger. There's one at Yale that's especially big, but the president of Yale told the people there that they would not have any guns. And it was a very peaceful rally. So to understand the story, you have to understand the Cambodian announcement and you have to understand that there's a weekend of unrest. We definitely have uh, some damage to buildings the night of May 1st, Friday night. We definitely have the burning of the ROTC, which is Saturday, May 2nd, um, when the National Guard actually come to campus. And I think people are surprised by the number. It's about 850 guardsmen that come onto a very small campus. And then I think absolutely critical and something that some people forget about is May 3rd. So we have the National Guard on campus, 850 of them. We have the smoldering remains of the ROTC building. And we have Governor Rhodes, who's running to be in the Senate. His primary is Tuesday, May 5th. And he comes to campus to make a speech to cement his reputation with the law and order crowd. And he calls the students here the worst type of people in America. He actually compares them to the Nazis, says they're worse than the brown shirts, and he compares them to the Klan when he says they're worse than the Knight Riders. And he tells everyone who's listening, many of which include the guardsmen, that they must eradicate the problem. Given all of that, tensions were running very high by the evening of Sunday the 3rd of May, which was when, as David Hassler told me, a group of extremely unhappy students set out to gain an audience with the university's then-president, Robert White. Students went to President White's house on the Kent State campus to talk to him, requested a meeting with him to say, we demand that these armed soldiers leave our campus. We've not done as a student body, something that deserves this armed presence on our campus. This is our home. This is our campus. What I've been told is that the students were told that if they would leave his presence and return to campus, he would come out and meet with them. So they agreed. And when they left his grounds, they were chased by armed National Guards with bayonets and dispersed. And he never showed. And so they felt tricked and deceived. There was a decision to then stage a massive rally on Monday. And that brought us to the events, you know, on the commons on Monday in which you had this face-off between student protesters claiming their First Amendment rights to assemble without weapons and the National Guard with guns. And, you know, shortly after noon, one group of the guards huddled and then in unison turned up on Blanket Hill and fired, and fired with real bullets for 13 seconds, killing four students, injuring nine. And that's how I understand the, 
steps that led up to the actual deaths and the injuries on May 4th. Suddenly they turned and started firing. I didn't have my glasses on. I couldn't see very well through my gas mask. I saw people hitting the dirt. So I hit the dirt thinking, okay, okay. The men in front of me were aiming their rifles. The bullets whisked past my ears. God, someone else is shooting. Did I miss an order? This is not what it sounds like on TV. This is not what bullets sound like on cartoons. I didn't know where to shoot or what to shoot or if I should shoot. It was a very different sound, a very different sound. It went on and on for what felt like eternity. That's an excerpt from David Hassler's play May 4th Voices, Kent State, 1970. The 13 beats there mark the 13 seconds during which the bullets were fired. It gives you a sense of the confusion, the disbelief and the horror. It's a pivotal moment within a taut drama which lasts barely 70 minutes. But when David Hassler first explored the archive upon which his play is based, it contained well over 100 interviews and amounted to around 1,200 pages of transcripts. Turning that abundance of material into such a concise work was quite a process. It helps that I have an obsessive personality and I'm kind of a mule. That play was assembled grain by grain. I began filtering through these initial full interview transcripts and gleaned and highlighted and then copy and pasted segments that told a story. And then I would find 20 minutes later in the interview, that story would be picked back up and new details would be given. And then finally, at the very end of that hour-long interview, there was this revelatory setup to the story that needed to be, go back at the very beginning. And so I felt like I was simply assisting these interviewees in converting their dialogues with their interviewer into these powerful monologues using the best of storytelling principles. And then I created these big chunks of these unbelievable stories and then began to weave some of the other voices almost as if they were listening and responding to each other. May 4th is so often about the failure of conversation and certainly of feeling the empathy, the viscera of, of another. And yet, 40 years later, reading through these oral histories gave me an opportunity to create a, a conversation between these voices that did not exist then and actually led to the violence then. When you were going back through the oral histories, was there anything that particularly stood out to you from them? Some unbelievable aha moments at multiple levels. One of the levels simply being that, you know, 90% of the oral histories are attributed to a name. You know, the person did not request to, to remain anonymous. So because I grew up in Kent, many of the oral histories I read were people I knew. In fact, one of the contributors turned out to be an English teacher with whom David had studied during the early 1980s. You know, I read his story where he talked about in 1970, he was, he was brand new then, and intervened a moment when one activist high school student was speaking out against the Vietnam War in the cafeteria and had a crowd gather to listen to him. And a group of mostly football players, big students, began to walk closer and closer intimidatingly. And each of the football players who he believed had fathers that had fought in the war and felt that this was not patriotic, had little pebbles in their hands and they were throwing them one at a time, ping, ping, at the chest of the student, speaking out 
against the war. He felt that if he didn't intervene, there could be very serious violence. And he said just at the moment when he was going to finally step up and put his body as a teacher in front of the student who was speaking out, the bell rang. And like pa he says, like Pavlov's dog, the tension went poof, and everyone just dispersed, picked up their books, and walked off to class. As David distilled the oral histories into the drama, he decided to intersperse some of the scenes with excerpts from a poem by the late Major Reagan, who was a graduate student on campus on the day of the shootings and then went on to teach creative writing at the university. Once David had a draft in place, he passed everything over to his colleague, Catherine Burke, who was leading a theater class. And Catherine Burke um, brilliantly worked with her students on that first draft of the play and added some more ways to interweave the voices and broke up some of the mini-size monologues into interesting back-and-forth dialogues. And so the play was uh, deepened and, and I think refined a lot by the work of Catherine Burke and her, and her students as they prepared to stage it for the first time for the 40th commemoration of May 4th, which we did on May 2nd, 2010. What was so gratifying, and I attribute that in, in large part to my colleague Catherine Burke's masterful directing of her students and to the students themselves who said this was a revelatory class, the devising theater class, and felt the gravitas, the gravity of, and the importance that they were giving voice to the experience of students who were their age 40 years earlier on this campus. And when, we, when they performed it on May 2nd, in 2010, you could have, just as the cliche, you could have heard a pin drop. We had maybe 500 people in attendance, and they sat there transfixed, as we all did. And it had that moment at the very end where there was utter silence before there was a standing ovation. And I would say out of 500 and so people, 400 of them stayed for a talkback session. You can find a film of the student production of David Hassler's May 4th Voices, Kent State 1970, on YouTube. The play is also being given new life in 2020 in the form of a radio drama being produced by WKSU. The cast members include Tina Fey. Before I left campus, I caught up with a couple of Kent State's current students. I'm Casey. I'm a senior here at Kent State. How does the history of what happened here affect you kind of in your daily life as a student here? Um, so it certainly does. The Victory Bell that's still out there, I lived in Stouffer Johnson Hall, which is that dorm right there. I can assure you it still gets rung after the lacrosse games and everything out here. So I mean, there are still aspects of life that are similar to the students that lived here at that time. What's the Victory Bell? What was the, what's the significance of that? So this part of campus was the center of campus at the time. Um, the Victory Bell was, it was actually a bell to commemorate. I mean, obviously when you win sports events that they would ring it and everything. Because it was the center of campus, that's where the protesting on May 4th um, initially occurred. And are there still events that take place each year? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have the May 4th Task Force, which is a student-led organization. Um, they usually help commemorate. The university is taking a bigger role with that this year because obviously it's going to be a bigger commemoration than normal. But every year we do have a candlelight vigil that starts actually out here by the Victory Bell and they walk through the site with candles and everything to kind of commemorate. And then in the parking lot, in half hour shifts, the public, students, really anyone 
can volunteer to take shifts and actually guard each of those spots where the students fell. And, the, and the, that continues all the way until the commemoration starts. My name is Tara Huffman and I'm a junior here at Kent State. And how does the history of the university have an impact on you? Um, well, to be honest, I didn't know anything about the shootings at Kent State until I actually came here. Coming here for me, I think it's important especially that the center is here now installed. I think that was a really nice thing that happened. And I think it's important to know about what happened here just so that we can teach others that happened here. And does what happened have relevance today for stuff going on on campus, would you say? Um, I would say so, yeah. Um, I would say various student organizations, I mean, they still are very active um, and the activism is still I mean, BUS, Black United Students, has a very big presence here on campus. So, I mean, it's, you know, there are still connections today. You can find out more about Kent State, the Kent State Shootings Oral History Archive, the May 4th Visitors Center, and other aspects of the university's history via the university website. As mentioned previously, a production of David Hassler's May 4th Voices, Kent State 1970, is available on YouTube, and you'll find a link to it in the notes that accompany this podcast. For Ohio Humanities, I'm Rachel Hopkin. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at rhopkin at ohiohumanities.org. Real Issues, Real Conversations is a production of Ohio Humanities, the state-based partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. This podcast is also made possible in part through the support of the Ohio State University's Humanities Institute. To learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects and programs, please visit ohiohumanities.org.